Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. On the show today, Steve Bannon gleefully takes credit for inflicting Donald Trump upon the world. And if he has it his way, he'll help prop up more populist leaders. A new documentary brings us closer to the most deplorable of the deplorables. So I think that what motivates him is not really a desire to to help the little guy and also who is the little guy, but a lot of that is mixed into his own vanity, his desire for power, his ability to enrich himself and to see himself as a figure of historical import. Buckling down for four more months of winter, doing a Chick-fil-A commercial, Opening up a box of C's candies, only instead of it being filled with delightful nuts and chews, it's filled with bees. These are just a few of the things I would rather do than devote more time and brain space to thinking about Steve Bannon. (laughs) Why won't he go away? As much as I wish he would return to Mordor and leave us alone, I will allow that it's important to understand a man who wields such influence in the global halls of power. The new documentary, The Brink, gives us a glimpse into the mind of the would-be puppet master of race... I mean, populist leaders worldwide. To tell us more about the film, we're joined by its director, Alison Clayman. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh my God, best intro ever. Thank you. <laughs> that was funny. Um, and we also have the producer, Marie-Therese Girgis. Welcome to 112BK. Thank you. Thank you. So this documentary is um, a verite doc. Alison, you are following around Steve Bannon. There's no talking heads. You're just recording what you see. And my immediate question is, how did he allow you to do this? How did you get access this is where it's great that you have both of us here because the story definitely starts with Marie Therese. All right, over to you to Marie Therese. Yeah. <laughs> I knew him. I worked for him many years ago. I was I was working at an art house film company that he bought. He didn't he didn't buy it with his own money, but he got the money and bought it, and he became my boss. Uh, so he was my boss for three years. That's right. He was a film executive. Uh, yeah, I mean he, he was a, he was an investment banker in the in the entertainment space. Right. He had various roles in Hollywood. I also learned that he was in charge of Biodome Two. Yeah, he was for oh, a year. There was a, no occasion actually, to use that tape, it's but it's on funniest. YouTube. You can watch it. Yeah, wow, it's a, a little interview footage. about it. I yeah. will be looking that up. I also am looking forward to a reboot of Biodome starring Polly Shore, <laughs> maybe Stephen Baldwin, <laughs> Steve Bannon. <laughs> um, so you had an existing relationship. Yeah, I had an existing relationship with him, and uh, I was, you know, watching him become this sort of larger-than-life public figure and covered every place. And it was increasingly, honestly, driving me crazy to see uh, not only what he was doing, which I was really disturbed by. And I told him, I reached out to him and wrote to him and texted him a number of occasions, basically telling him I was disgusted and furious at what he was doing. But um, but then I started to get honestly a little bit. A little bit frustrated with what the media was doing and in, in how he was being both, you know, just given so much constant attention, but the kind of attention. He was really built up as this, you know, mastermind, evil genius, Darth Vader, death himself on Saturday Night Live. And if you think about it, while those are negative, they're incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. And I knew him really well. I had been fairly close to him years ago. I had been in touch with him on and off, although not in the years directly preceding this. And I just felt that, you know, he was being built up and all of this seemingly negative attention was actually fueling him and and allowing him to go on speaking tours and give speeches and then eventually to go to Europe. And and I really wanted to to try to kind of like dispel some of that. And I felt that the only way to really do that was through documentary. And I, I produced documentaries. And so one day after many months of despair and telling him off, um, I just just asked him. 
And he uh, said, no. He said, you'll destroy me. That was his response. Because he knew how I felt. I made it really clear. What he, he was, was still doing. in the White House. He was still time. in the White House. Mm-hmm. I asked him a few more times. And he each time he would say no or he would just or he would ignore my emails. And then uh, the last time he wrote back and said he was still in the White House, by the way. He wrote back and said, I'll do it. That came as, you know, as a half surprise. I, I think I kept asking because I knew that if I asked often enough, he would do it. But it was still sort of like, oh, no, now I got to do this. Now I got to you know spend a year with him. Um, and that, that really was the beginning of it. And did you approach Allison? Yeah, I approached Allison. Allison, what was your initial reaction? I mean, your previous documentary, you spent a bunch of time with Ai Weiwei. Mm-hmm. And now Steve Bannon is sort of a different figure. Were you at all reluctant to spend this much time with him? So I was kind of down for the project, I did say yes automatically, uh, which I then later sort of examined why why was that so automatic? But with the caveat of, I don't know anything about what he's like as a person. I mean, obviously, I have my own political vantage point on the world. I didn't think that that was, you know, I wasn't entering it into this to be like, let me see if my politics are going to be challenged what he, by what he's doing, per se. I really did think it was an opportunity to kind of go into enemy territory to really see what's happening and let them expose their tactics, really, especially with Bannon, how he works, who he's working with, who's supporting him. Um, but I didn't know what he was like at all. So my my first sort of thing was I need to meet him because I didn't know if it would be something I couldn't stand or that or he couldn't carry a film. So I met him in September 2017, Marie and I went down to D.C. And, you know, he walked in the room and Honestly, it was the first 10 seconds of him talking. I was just like, wow, this guy actually like has charisma and he's going to say some shit. Like it felt like you could tell that he was going to reveal himself in ways that he probably wouldn't realize he was doing. I know that seems crazy, but, you know, when you do this also for a living and, you know, you watch people and you can see, like, is there going to be a lot here? And it definitely felt like there was going to be a lot there. And I think that's a great segue into our first clip, which we'll play in a moment where he really does reveal some of his character. How many absolute votes have already been cast? Is like 3.9 million? Not national. Not national, Pat. Pat, I'm talking about Florida. Please stay focused. Just stay focused, okay? I want to fucking go through these states. I don't give a fuck about a national number. Go back to Florida. How many votes have been... Will you shut the... Will you shut the fuck up and let the guy talk? And for our viewers who are listening on the podcast rather than watching that um, last sound is him banging his head against like an Ikea cabinet, <laughs> um, you really did get unlimited access to him. There are like maybe one or two times when he's like, could you please step out of the room or turn the camera off? But for the most part, he lets you see him warts and all. So Allison and Marie Therese, since you worked with him and know him, maybe you can tell us a little bit about who he is. What's he like to be around? I was going to say, what yeah. came through in the movie? You know, I definitely feel like the, you know, it was a distillation of like what I was taking in over those 13 months. You know, I think we kind of ended up in a similar place, which was amazing. You know, she had years of knowing him and I 
uh, was starting from scratch, but I think we came, you know, she saw me come to some similar conclusions. But I'm curious, what, what did you think it was like? Well, I think he comes across as charming when he needs to be charming. I think he also comes across as very angry. Um, the way that he speaks to people who work for him is not the way that I would want a manager to speak to me. I think he thinks that he's the smartest man in the room. Well, in that room, he might be. <laughs> I mean, it's all low. To be, to be honest, yeah. the bar was not very high in that room. Um, I mean, you know, one question that I am left with is what makes him tick? So we talked a little bit about his background. Um, you know, he went to Virginia Tech. He was in the armed services. He went to Harvard Business School. He was a Goldman Sachs guy. He seems to have no skin in the populist game. Like, he's not an everyman. He wants to tell you that he went to Harvard. And so why does he want what he wants, and why won't he just leave us alone? I mean, you're totally hitting on exactly the right questions. I feel like I have a lot of maybe educated insights from spending all the time, but I, I also feel like I did try to put a lot of it in the film. I mean, I think that there's something fairly empty about the ideology that he professes to have. I think that when you get down, you can kind of trace it down to a few core ideas that I do think influence his worldview, and they ultimately come down to preserving a white Christian America and Europe. And, you know, a lot of his solutions for what he is now framing as an economic issue and that it's about the little guy, the solutions that he offers are all related to controlling the movement of people, you know, and having walls and immigration policy and fretting about the birth rates of, you know, Muslim migrants to Europe. Um, so I think that what motivates him is not really a desire to to help the little guy and also who is the little guy. But a lot of that is mixed into his own vanity, his desire for power, his ability to enrich himself and to see himself as a figure of historical import. And yeah. I think you capture the vanity really well. Like these moments come across where you, there's almost like a subplot where he's trying to lose weight <laughs> and he hates how he looks on camera. And it, he does take it personally when people, you know, compare him to John yeah, the Hutt. I mean, he does, you know, he can, I think he can laugh it off. He has a really good sense of humor. He has a self-deprecating sense of humor, which I, I've, I read once that, you know, psychologists say is actually one of the most appealing qualities in human being. It's a very seductive quality to be able to make fun of oneself. And I think he puts that to great use. But yeah, he's vain. You know, he, he's in that sense, he's like anyone else. He, uh, he can sort of laugh off these things. And I think he does, but I think he does absolutely care. He was a handsome young man, you know. Now, I like to say that I think his exterior reflects what he's been doing for the past, you know, 10, 15 years. It's not you are what you eat. It's you That's are really, it is, ideology. It is, it's actually what I really <laughs> yeah, believe all the because, is not gonna you know, happen. when I knew him well, which was like 15 years ago, I mean, if you saw pictures of him back then, you'd be, he, you know, he has he aged far more than chronological years would normally age somebody. But yeah, he's, you know, he's, he's vain. I think he, uh, but I think that he thinks, or at least he would say that he's sort of sacrificing, this is all a sacrifice, right? This is all a sacrifice for the country. So him sort of even giving up his health, giving up sleep, giving up, you know, eating well, socializing, having a private life. This is, he's sacrificing for the country. Now I, I tend to look at that as a load of shit, honestly, but that's what he would say. Yeah. But it's also not just the country because most of this film charts him flying across Europe, uh, private, mm -hmm. I should mention, um, you know, trying 
trying to rally populist leaders, you know, the worst of the worst into some sort of like unified movement. Right. So like what like what is the thing? Like what is he sacrificing for? Is it, as you said, like white nationalism? Well, I think it's also kind of for better or worse. That's like what his brand is like that. It, you know, he he this is where he has clout and he has people who want to, you know, take meetings with him um, ever since he's been doing Breitbart. You know, it, this is kind of his brand and he's nothing if not a, a messenger and a propagandist, a self-described propagandist. Um, I think that there's something to this vision that we kind of have to give him I don't want to say give him credit for, but in terms of like when people say, why make a movie about him now? Because a lot of the movie is kind of rendering him, as one journalist said to me, you made him seem smaller than life. And I think it is also kind of demystifying him, deconstructing him, knocking him down a little bit and poking holes through what makes him the idea that he's so powerful. But this articulation of a seemingly completely contradictory idea of a global, international, unified, far right um, is in some ways kind of a new idea. He didn't totally invent it, but he is becoming this very big proponent of it. And he's putting in the work at the, you know, on the tab of whatever billionaires are funding all these flights and all these trips. Um, but he is trying to bring people together who maybe thought they had something in common, but never necessarily sat down at the table. Or he's putting this idea out there that, you know, Bolsonaro is great and that he's with Bolsonaro and then Bolsonaro shows up at the White House. I mean, I, I think that there's something, you know, it's like kind of with this movie is a balancing act. And while on the one hand wanting to put his influence into perspective, I also think it would be wrong to say like it's all it's it, you know, it's it's all a mirage. And that's a great segue into another clip that we'll play. Uh, this is Bannon talking to the former leader of the UK Independence Party, Nigel Farage, about sort of assembling a legion of doom across Europe and the world. If you're interested, what I'd like to do is set up something, and we'll, I'll fund it somehow, that I think, and I think you're the perfect guy, we help knit together this populist nationalist movement throughout the world. Because guys in Egypt are coming to me, the Modi's guys in India, Dutarte, you know, and, and we get Orban and, and even thing, and we're somehow some sort of convening authority for conferences and stuff like that, so we can get okay. ideas out there. I mean, do you think that's a, do you think that's a worthwhile thing? Yeah, or think, it's, I'm not, well, nobody's it's, got it, nobody's um, doing it right now. It's not being done. Yeah, and I would I would actually say that in in Europe, in some ways, his the threat is greater because it's, it's very real. There's an election happening in May. Um, and I think what you'll end up seeing is that the far right will win a number of seats. People have known this, you know, now for quite a while. The far right is obviously rising in many European countries, and he'll take the credit, and then that will fuel him to then go to Asia, to the Middle East, to Latin America, and you know, Europe really is, I think, even in some ways closer to a precipice than than we are. And I think, unfortunately, one of the ramifications of all of the Trump news, which is important, is that we don't we don't hear or see what's happening in Europe. And I, I actually think that, you know, one of the one of the real sort of gifts, I'm sorry, I know I produced the movie, but that the, that the film offers is actually kind of a window into what's happening over there. You know, our mainstream news media is just not following what's happening over there the way, you know, other European country, news media. The scary thing, too, is they're doing it through just the ballot box in a lot of ways. Like, the problem is they have no bottom, and they're just willing to use any kind of messaging, even if it's uh, filled with lies um, about 
migrants, about Islam, you know, but this, the, the worldview, they're willing to pull from all of the stuff, frankly, that's in the manifesto of the New Zealand shooter. I mean, it's the same stuff about conquering and fearing, you know, a change, a change in the culture of, of Europe. But they're going to what they want to do and what you see in the film is that they are talking about these May 2019 EU elections. And the scary thing is they have super low turnout for those elections. I was just thinking about this today as we're seeing all the reports that, you know, Republicans acknowledge that like Trump's probably, you know, what wouldn't win the popular vote again, but it'll be fine because of the Electoral College. I mean, what's scary is the tactics are either amoral or actually illegal, but they're doing it through a mechanism right now that's just electoral politics. And, you know, it, if they can get more people out to vote for, you know, what they're offering, which, again, I maintain is not really any solutions for people. It's really just based on hate and fear. Yeah. But they could be successful. And, you know, all of that is the kind of stuff that I felt like that's what I was in it for, not just to, like, hang out with Bannon or to understand what makes him tick. Because that mean, sounds so fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really was to, like, understand what is moving all this. And I feel like right. that is what it comes down to. Allison, you mentioned that one of your goals with this film was to make him smaller than life. And you were filming during the time period uh, that Errol Morris's documentary American Dharma was released in Venice. And it has not secured a distributor, I'm pretty sure. I think he's self-distributing, maybe. Um, he said so on Twitter. He said so on Twitter. he wants to. I saw that. And Morris was roundly criticized as letting him off the hook and giving him a bully pulpit. And this is something that Bannon says also in your film, where he's like, mainstream media is our best friend. And you sort of track him on this grand tour of Europe with headlines from Der Spiegel and Le Monde and The Guardian, following him wherever he goes, giving legitimacy, even if they're being critical of him, giving legitimacy to these ideas. So was that at all in your thinking as a filmmaker as you were following him? And did the reception of the Errol Morris documentary influence at all how you decided to tell the story? Well, the, the our project started months before that one. So, you know, from the beginning, you know, the neither the premise nor the execution was really influenced by the fact that Errol Morris came in and filmed uh, a very different film uh, with Bannon. It obviously impacted us in ways that related more to, to like a business aspect. Yeah. He's a very, I mean, he's a legendary filmmaker, you know, in my field. It definitely feels a little bit like David and Goliath. Um, it's, you know, it, so it certainly affected our production. I wouldn't say it uh, impacted the approach in any way. I think w we had already seen that, or, you know, I had already seen that his relationship to the media had to be part of the story. And so I sort of was like, well, even though it presented a lot of obstacles for us, that there was going to be another film and that it was going to be made in a shorter amount of time and come out before us at very prestigious film festivals. I was like, well, we're just going to have to widen you know, the frame and we're going to have to include that film. I mean, we covered a lot about it. It's not really so much in the film, except it explains why he's in Venice for a bunch of, you know, incredible scenes that take place. Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, from the beginning, we talked about the fact that, the you know, the film had to be verite for a reason. And I think with all due respect to Errol Morris, I mean, you know, he makes these interview films and I think often they're very successful. Um, I think that Bannon is a very specific figure. He's very in, difficult to interview because I think he comes to an interview as a battle. He actually gets sort of, you know, hypes himself up for them and really looks at them like a cage match in a way. And um, 
I I'm personally, my, my feeling going into it was that I don't know, even someone as, you know, brilliant as Errol Morris, I don't know how much you're going to gain from interviewing Steve Bannon. I don't know how, what is going to actually be truly illuminating. It's not even so much that I would, the platform question becomes an issue, I think, when you interview him. But I really think it's more that, you know, what is going to be ex really revelatory? What are you going to see? Also, that's bigger than Bannon. Because when, you know, one of the reasons that I even had the idea for making the film wasn't just to kind of get in behind the scenes of Bannon and show, you know, what makes him tick and what is it really like. It was really to sort of expose the larger world, as Allison said, and also his relationship with the media, with the press. And in order to do that, you have to kind of take a bigger picture and I think follow him. I think just interviewing him without meaning to, as I certainly don't think it was Errol Morris' intention. I think, you know, his intentions were very much to challenge him. And I think he does in the film. But I think it becomes just strictly about Bannon. And mm -hmm. I, to me, personally, I think that's a mistake because I don't think Bannon is the cause of everything, just the way I don't think Trump is the cause of everything. I think Bannon is much of a symptom as he is a cause, and so is Trump. And to sort of focus strictly on Bannon by virtue of filming him for three days in an interview, to me, is kind of gives him, again, a little bit too much power, if, if even though I don't believe that that was his intention. And I haven't seen American Dharma, but, you know, I, I think you're right that the format of Errol Morris documentaries set him up for failure. Like he brought an Terratron to a gunfight. Bannon is a skilled debater. Yeah. Um, and I think that it was actually very important in your film that your voice didn't appear that often. You sort of let him speak for himself. And actually, one of the times when your voice does appear, I think it revealed a lot about his personality. And I take it that you speak Mandarin. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you you correct his pronunciation of a name. And can you tell me what happens in this scene? Yeah, I, I correct his mispronunciation of a Communist Party leader named Wang Qishan, and he, who he calls Wang Qishan. Um, and it, just in that moment, it felt like something, you know, I wasn't, I frankly didn't want to like, I always would joke with him, I don't want to help you, but like, you're saying this wrong. And um, he's just really, he, he's playful, but 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 actually like resistant. He's like quite stubborn to, ta to take her. the note. <laughs> yeah, he's so like so pissed. And 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 it's sort of like and it's also kind of questioning me. And again, it comes off playful, but it goes on too long. You know what I mean? Like it's questioning me and you know saying, oh, I'm not I'm not talking about people in China. You know what I mean? And also again, if you're if you are a someone who's up on Chinese news or, you know, any kind of expert when he talks about, you know, who he's going to check about the pronunciation. It's not someone who really, even Chinese. Yeah, he was like, he was like, it's John Thornton, <laughs> yeah. John Thornton. And you're like, well, uh, billions of other people yeah. in China it, it, would disagree. It's yeah. just so, so ludicrous. And because it is this private moment and like I was looking for the film is not constructed to be that it's not about my time with Bannon in the sense of like, do I like get my licks in and do we spar and I like nail him? That's just not the way the film is framed. And for me, it was always preferable for someone to challenge him in front of the camera. Like I, you know, better, you know, even if I might get points in, in my footage, it's like better if someone else does it. It's not about him and the voice, the, the disembodied voice off camera. Right. Um, and but, there is one scene where he is challenged by a Guardian journalist. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that scene. So that is a journalist by the name of Paul Lewis, who was there also doing a sort of more extended uh, video documentary um, for The Guardian. And he really came prepared. He, you know, he was he had his own camera, so he was doing it, you know, a bit in that kind of style. It's not just a print journalism where you're observing or doing a written interview. You know, he was there to spar. But frankly, he wins because he came prepared and he can show that ex exchange really exposes the way that Bannon deals 
with direct challenges when he's caught, which is to lie, to change the topic, to just deny the facts of the situation completely. Yeah. And maybe this is a question for you, Marie Therese, as somebody who knows him. In that scene, Paul Lewis says um, he's talking about some of Bannon's anti-Semitic dog whistle or just whistle whistle tactics. And he says, you know, you know that when you say George Soros is funding this global agenda, that that is anti-Semitic. And Bannon repeatedly says, no, it's not. He's like, and he says, I can't believe that you, Paul, would think that that is a dog whistle tactic. And Paul responds and is like, I know that you, I know that you know that's true. You're a smart man. And I guess my question is like, is he, he definitely is using rhetoric that is racist. Is he himself racist? Does he believe in the supremacy of the white race? So we get asked this a lot. I was asked this for many months before we, you know, we even started making a documentary. Um, I had my own, you know, my own sort of personal question about that because my experience of him, you know, 15 years ago, 12 years ago, 10 years ago, what I would say, he's not a racist. He's not, I'd never heard him, you know, I never heard him say anything. I never watched him do anything in terms of his treatment of people. I worked with a pretty diverse staff of people um, because I think he's such an opportunist on a, on a, on a practical level, you know, in some ways he's probably the most colorblind, you know, cause if it's good for him, great. You know, if you're a Muslim, but you're good for him, great. However, at the end of the day, the conclusion that I had to reach and I, I believe is that it doesn't really matter. I don't, I can't tell you exactly. I have my own sort of personal feelings about it, which are complicated, but it doesn't matter because when you look at what he does, when you look at who he does it with, what you look at, when you look at what he is sparking and continues to spark in this country and around the world, those things are all racist. Those things are all anti-Semitic. Those things are all, you know, white nationalist. And so while, you know, you, we could have another hour long discussion about his personal psychology and what he really believes or doesn't really believe, I think it doesn't matter. And I, in some ways, the conclusion I would come to is that no matter how you look at it, it's terrible because whether he actually wakes up every day and actually thinks really terrible thoughts about people who are not white, that's really bad. If he doesn't and he still does what he's doing, you could argue in some ways that that's even worse. So either way, it's you reach the same conclusion. And I, and I actually think that as a country, my opinion is that we have to kind of stop focusing on the personal sort of ideology and, and stop even thinking of racism as just someone, uh, the people in Charlottesville. You know, those are the obvious racists, right? Those are the people that really wear it on their sleeves. But there are people who do and support and champion uh, policies that harm people of other races and, and religious minorities who might not be the people who are in the streets screaming horrible things or, har or physically harming people. And uh, I think we see that in our government. I think the entire Republican, I mean, my personal opinion is the entire Republican Party is racist. The entire Republican Party in 2019 is anti-Semitic, is a white nationalist party. And, I mean, and Bannon is the Republican Party. You cannot separate those. I think that's such an important point because I was left, I came away from this documentary thinking, well, is he an opportunist or, you know, what's in his heart of hearts? Is he actually a racist? And actually, who fucking cares? I mean, that's what we're, it's great that we have this opportunity where people are asking what we think because that's definitely our message. You know, I think the movie can lead you there and speak for itself. But like, if you ask us, that's that's definitely... It's, it's not about what's in his heart, you know, and the movie leads you instead to this question, right? Obviously, there's not a lot of, like, wonderful things in his heart. 
<laughs> Maybe does he have like a pet that he loves? He has or? a daughter. He has three children, and you know he he's very close to one of them. So you know, I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm being I'm being flip, but sure. Well, maybe I'll close out with one more policy question, I guess. So Bannon says to this Guardian journalist, I'm talking to you because you have an audience that I want to reach. I need to convert 20 percent of your guys. And then he's in conversation with John Thornton, who's the ex-head of Goldman Sachs again. And um, Thornton is saying that, you know, they need to have a, a way of reaching the blacks, the Hispanics. And I'm like, on what fucking planet? Like, what is what are they talking about? Who are these 20 percent? of progressives or some of the blacks and the Hispanics who they think they're going to appeal to with the racist platform. What is that about? Well, I think that this, you know, whole year that I was watching them is definitely them trying to frame their message or maybe like put this like veneer around it that is it that makes it more about economics. Honestly, it is stealing, I think, a lot of the language of the left. But I actually believe Thankfully, that there is an insurgent new left that, you know, in the U.S. that actually not only means these things, but has the policy, you know, ideas to back it up. But I think they're busy. It's all a rebranding and it's an obfuscation. That is it is something that worries me. The fact that that he says it a lot in the film is there because he says it even more in real life. You know, I'm trying to, like, communicate through this edit, you know, that this is something that really matters to him. And I think that's why he's saying it's not about racism and, and all that stuff. But as we're saying, we don't it's not that we buy that, you know, but we're saying, like, you have to look at what the policies are underneath and then you, you can see what it's all really about. I would also say I agree with you. I, I don't you know, I don't I don't think that either Trump nor Bannon. It's like Trump saying, like, how could it, be, it couldn't be worse for African-Americans? Right. Vote for me. It can't be worse. I don't necessarily think the risk is actually the, you know, the African-American and Latino population turning towards Bannon or Trump. I think it I think it's white people, honestly. Um, so I think although he says we're going to convert, I think who he's looking to convert are white people and and, um, you know, very in a very calculated manner. He, he believes that, you know, they can get some, let's say, former Bernie supporters. And, and I, while it's, I'd like to say that's impossible, I, I don't know if it's impossible. I mean, I think it would only be possible through people believing the, the fake message that he's putting out there, you know, because I, I think right now his supporters are largely just white people. And they're also people of, um, of, of all kinds of economic backgrounds. And I think when you look at the film and you see who's funding his movement, um, it's, it's billionaires, right? It's not like little, you know, it's not about getting big money out of politics. It's actually leaning even more into the dark money right. kind of shadier part of things. So people would have to be being fooled because he is not acting in their interest. You know, no matter what your race or your economic, you know, situation, it's very clear that he's carrying water for billionaires and for corporate interests. Absolutely. Yeah, and, but, he, and he could be doing, you know, if he, if he really cared about the little guy, right? What is he doing right now? His focus is entirely on building the wall. OK, you know, he could actually be using his power, using his notoriety to even from a conservative perspective, you know, lobbying to, you know, to get factories to reopen, to bring business to back to America. I mean, these are things he could actually be and doing. They could have built the wall while they had two years of every of control of every branch of government, too. I mean, I think it's also nice to have, as he and Sam Nunberg acknowledge in the film, you know, it's a nice message. It's a nice thing to rally people around. It's easy to understand. It's almost like it's better as an idea. Right, right. Well, tell us a little bit about the film and where and when people can see it. Uh, So Magnolia Pictures is releasing the film. Um, It's called The Brink. It's going to be opening 
this Friday, March 29th in the city. It'll be at um, IFC Center and at the landmark 57th Street. Uh, and I'll be doing Q&As all weekend. Yeah, and it's also opening this weekend for, for anyone listening. It's opening in uh, Boston and Los Angeles this weekend. D.C. and Los Angeles. Sorry, D.C. and Los Angeles. And then in over the next you know six or seven weeks, it's opening in 50-plus cities and, and towns. So right. hopefully everyone will get a chance to see it. And wouldn't it be great to have you know a healthy box office report for Bannon to see when he opens his you know news on Monday? I think that would be great. The film is called The Brink. Everyone go see it with your friends. Yell at the screen. Get good and angry. Um, thank you guys so much for coming on the show, Allison Murtess. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that is the show for today. Please join us next time. One Win 2 BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 